Welcome to the Zeke Sky Podcast. guys thank you for joining again the names changed we're now the zeke sky podcast there's this old albert einstein quote and he's talking about the philosophy of science and he says something like a good theory is one you can explain to a child which is obviously an interesting comment from a guy whose ambitions included a so-called god equation that would explain every single event in the universe but the essence of it seems to resonate across academic disciplines if the point of doing physics is turning celestial events into simple physical rules, maybe the point of history is to turn purely human events into simple moral rules. Regardless of how it's done, there's some sense that a theory or idea is more rugged or durable when it has less of an intellectual distance between the premise and the conclusion. And in history, I think we do gravitate to that because there's something so satisfying about those moments of, see, he got what he deserved and all that. And so today I talked to my new friend Ben Wilson about subjects around this. Ben Wilson is the creator of a pretty popular podcast called How to Take Over the World. He's also the founder of Caspian Studios, among other things. And we talked about things that I find very interesting in history around decay, how civilizations grow, how they expand and contract, and what, if anything, can be gleaned from the events of the past and how we can best learn from them in the future. And so I bring you Ben Wilson. I am here with Ben Wilson, the creator of the How to Take Over the World podcast. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Zeke. You're welcome. I wanted to start off today with a quote. It comes from a book that I'm currently reading about Greece, and it's from a political philosopher who came significantly after the period we're going to be talking a lot about today, but he's called Charles Louis de Secondat. And his quote is this, Patriotism is conducive to good morals, and good morals contribute to patriotism. The less we are able to satisfy our private passions, the more we abandon ourselves to those of a more general nature. Why are monks so fond of their order? Precisely because of all the things that make it insupportable. Their rule deprives them of all the things on which the ordinary passions rest. There remains, then, only that passion for the rule which torments them. The more austere the rule, that is, the more it curbs their inclinations, the more force it gives to the one inclination which it leaves them. And that's the quote. And I uh, told people in the kind of preliminary parts of this podcast kind of what it was going to be about. And you have a, a podcast called How to Take Over the World, and you look at these extraordinary figures in world history, and you talk about kind of the methods by which they went about either acquiring the tools to sort of conquer the world and how they really, really went about doing it. I am fascinated with both that and the other side of kind of this, which is 
how one does not take over the world, which is the all of the opposite of the characteristics that would make someone empowered and strong, because I think that that's a very interesting lens for understanding exactly what you talk about, decay. So in this quote, what I hear from this political philosopher is essentially that the less we're able to sort of satisfy our private passions, um, the more we abandon ourselves to those uh, that are more general, he says. And I just wonder, do you see in a lot of these figures that you talk about that they are less guided by personal, sexual, physical, emotional passions? Yeah, so absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the perfect example of that is, uh, is probably Alexander the Great, who was really renowned for, as you said, um, his, his lack of, of sexual, sexual passion and sexual appetite, but also physical appetite. Um, just uh, he wasn't concerned with the normal uh, things that, that men were supposed to be concerned with and had this like agitation uh, for conquest, for discovery, uh, for domination. And he got a lot of that inspiration from Cyrus the Great, the Persian Empire, uh, who was the founder of the Persian Empire, which he, of course, conquered. And it's interesting, um, you know, where does this spring from? This like, because uh, I, I, I don't know that it's a deliberate study. Um, and it's, it is maybe like a little bit mystical. I'm not sure where it springs from that like he is guided by this otherworldly force rather than normal human passions. I can't. Like, I'm not sure that you can choose that lifestyle for yourself. I do think a little bit it's like a, uh, the finger of God either touches you or it doesn't. Interesting. So that, that's kind of my general idea here, too. And I think that based on what you just said, one of the, the things you might want to kind of conclude from this is that there is sort of a different hierarchy of needs, maybe. For these people, right? We know what a hierarchy of needs is, right? A hierarchy of needs is this uh, old psychological idea from Abraham Maslow that essentially people have needs that are at the foundational level and people have needs that are at the top level, right? And we always sort of think about those needs as being, you know, the bottom being food, shelter, and then as you get towards the top, you have needs that are maybe a little less need-like and maybe a little bit more want-like. Maybe self-actualization is somewhere up there at the very, very top. And I wonder sometimes if these types, instead of really, really being driven by the things that we think are fundamental to existence, they're actually driven very much more by the things that are higher up on the pyramid, almost. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting way to think about it, actually. I'd never thought of that. But they, they sort of invert uh, Maslow's pyramid. I, I think there's some truth to that. And I, I think, you know, these are not well-balanced people. And I don't mean that as an insult. Um, in fact, I think uh, nowadays we put too much emphasis on um, on being a, a well balanced person, if that makes sense. Like um, last night, we were just talking about this. Last night, the Golden State Warriors won the NBA championship. Okay, um, and they call on the general manager to speak. And uh, his name is Bob Myers. I actually know him. Great guy. But he gets on. The first thing he says is, um, first of all, I want to thank the, you know, the wives and the children of 
uh, or the spouses and the children of everyone on this team who have like sacrificed so much so that we could be doing here and doing this. And I was just kind of like, on the one hand, like that's nice. Obviously that's nice that you're trying to do this, but like, what if Neil Armstrong's first words had been like, thanks to my wife and kids who are sacrificing so much so that I can be here. You know, like, I think we need to put more emphasis on, uh, on the apex of human achievement, right? Like a lot of this stuff is there so that great men can achieve, uh, great things. So yeah, these people aren't balanced. They're not well balanced, but that's okay. Like, I think we should, um, be like look to find and support and lift up and elevate those imbalanced people who have these kind of freakish desires that that people like alexander have well okay so i I like part of what you said and before we get into the history here i got to push back on some of it i think we don't want to support these people i think they need to support themselves and they need to do it in a way so that basically everything they do isn't a measurement of how acceptable other people are finding their behavior. I mean, when you really look at some of these characters to, to manage to do the things that they need to do, even in the modern day, it really can't be about the kind of validation that we think about in everyday life, where people get validated and feel better about things. You really have to be, it seems to me, you really have to be more of a lion and think that the opinions of sheep don't really matter all that much. I think that when people do these great things, they get support simply by the nature of the deed that they're doing. Simply by the, you know, take someone like Jeff Bezos, for example. He doesn't need our support. You know, he created something that basically has the world hostage in a number of ways. I mean, that would be one way of viewing what Amazon Um, Art and creation is an inherently violent act. You are reordering reality to conform to your vision if that makes sense. Um, therefore, it is like, uh, you know, um, Steve Jobs said, I want to put a dent in the universe. And as you think about that, like, okay, but a dent is an inherently violent thing. Like, um, you, you, like everyone can't just go along in their merry way. And so what you are saying is 100% correct, that like, if what you are trying to do is appease people and make them happy, then you're never going to be great because what being great means is to reorient and change um, the world and and leave that dent. But I will say though, if you look at, for example, I think the 19th century is probably the best example of this. If you're a British gentleman in the 19th century, okay. And a lot of the scientific discovery and artistic accomplishment of 19th century was done um, by gentlemen, was done by uh, aristocrats. Um, Like, you, your world was so catered to to keep you focused on what mattered to you. Like if you wanted to be um, a Charles Darwin type, uh, if you wanted to be, um, you know, like a, a gentleman scholar, then like every element of your life was catered to so that you could focus on that higher pursuit. And um, I think right now that's inverted of like, if you're focused on any higher pursuit, people are saying, well, why you know, why aren't you doing more to feed starving kids, you know, whatever. Interesting you mentioned that. I think this is actually part of the effect of capitalism more broadly because 
when you really it, when you talk to I don't want to stereotype, but if you talk to people who are say from the entrepreneurial or business class, there's been this pushback against any sort of um, knowledge acquisition that isn't strictly practical. There's this sense that if you go to college and you get a degree in something that is wholly different from the field you go into, that you sort of wasted your time. And that's kind of a disaster because economic acquisitiveness really has nothing to do with the nature of objective knowledge. Really, when you're talking about, let's talk about the arts and humanities through this lens. I know we're getting off on a tangent, but this is actually maybe a good primer here. But the arts and humanities are maybe uh, the thing that is first called into question by these types. But the truth is that without the arts and humanities, you wouldn't have any of the, the things that allowed you know, a place like Athens to become um, the civilizational apex that it became to produce something like democracy. You wouldn't have the idealism that goes along with so much philosophy. Heck, you wouldn't have a lot of the art that actually powers people to get up in the morning. Um, let's, uh, let's take the conversation to, to some more uh, specific examples real quick. Um, and kind of try to tie it in with stuff in the nature of the podcast. I have this quote. It's from Herodotus. It's about Cyrus. And uh, I think it, it's going to lend itself nicely to further kind of exploration of Alexander the Great. But it goes something like this. Soft lands tend to breed soft people. Wondrous fruits of the earth and valiant warriors grow not from the same soil. And this is something that it is said that Cyrus or Korosh said. And to me, the significance here is this, and other people have visited this. Walt Whitman visited it, and you know, you will see this type of thing uh, said in workout rooms and gyms and all kinds of things that an easy life doesn't make a tough person. I wonder if you could point me and everyone else listening to this to the very significant ways in which our existence in the modern world might be very, very different from the world of Cyrus or Alexander the Great, the world they came up in, the world that they tried to get to the age of even 20 in. Well, so what's interesting is I think um, the ways in which it is similar, not to them, but to the people that they conquered. And that is to say that actually, like, if you were an aristocrat, in um in greece in 300 bc um your life was actually pretty similar to the life of zeke's guy in 2022 um except for instead of technology and automation everything was done by slaves right um life was pretty similar what's different is with cyrus and alexander and you see this repeated throughout history in so many places and in so many different ways is these people straddled the line between that civilization and this um harder existence right so um cyrus was a um uh, was a uh, persian um gosh i'm trying to think of the actual the other word that they used for uh it was a parthian essentially and uh and so they were like a mountain people right and similarly the macedonians lived in these mountain in these highlands uh up above greece and uh, you see the similarity repeated with uh, the Arab conquest coming from these harsh desert conditions. Go look at China and you see, um, you know, these steppe invasions time and time again coming from Mongolia and inner Mongolia. And it's just um, you see it repeated and repeated again and again. And what's funny is that 
and I think this is the, the thing for people to keep in mind, is that yesterday's conqueror becomes tomorrow's conquered, right? It's always like the Persians are these warlike mountainous people who come conquer, found this great empire. Great. Four or five generations later, they're just like the people they conquered. They've become soft and fat and happy, which leaves room for the next set of, of Highlanders, of people from these wildernesses to come through and, and conquer. So let's, let's linger on that for a moment, because I think that that was maybe the idea behind this pod- podcast. This idea that decay happens over generations, maybe it's kind of this idea that um, strong men create good times, good times create weak people, weak people create bad times, and we all know what happens in bad times. Um, your civilization can come to an end. There are very satisfying moments from a lot of historians that seem to teach you this wonderful cosmic lesson around this. Where if you, to use Dan Carlin's phrase, but if you have the silk slippers on for too long, you're going to slip and fall kind of thing. And Persia and the Persian Empire seems to be the textbook example of this. And um, I think one of the things that you just said that really ties this up in a perfect package is that they are very much... um, kind of a dynastic monarchy where the line the the you know the original founder of the empire took great care to make sure that his son was in the right position to rule the empire but in theory even by the time cambyses comes around right cambyses already grew up in the rich kid era right and cambyses is already um sh- is showing some of the typical typical signs of megalomania and paranoia and all of that by if you go by any of the ancient sources i don't even think you have to wait to xerxes to even see it well so and i think this is interesting and i think this is what people maybe misunderstand a little bit is um that actually usually the peak what we think of as the peak of civilizational accomplishment usually happens well into the process of decline um so let's take some examples. So for example, when we think of uh, Plato and Socrates, that, that is uh, Greek civilization already in decline. It's already past its apex. And then Plato and Socrates, of course, are only a generation before Alexander. So you kind of get your peak civilizational accomplishment um, after the decline has already started. And then once the decline gets uh, really deep, that's when you have a character like Alexander who comes and defines a new era, which is the Hellenistic period. Um, and that comes like right at the end of the decline. Um, but you see the same thing with Caesar, like the Roman empire was, or excuse me, the Roman Republic was deep into decline, right? They'd been having these civil wars for decades already by the time that Julius Caesar came around and the thing had already started to unravel. And yet Caesar is what we think of as its apex, not as something as part of its decline. And I think you could say the same thing about today, that uh, I think, I don't know what you would call the peak of our um, civilizational accomplishment. I think it might be landing, historians might say it's landing a man on the moon. Um, And I think that did happen uh, well into into our decline as well. Okay, so this is really, really interesting, and this is going to take me into part of the, the next part of the conversation. But 
I am really interested in this dichotomy that's presented that you actually nicely dispatched of between artists and conquerors. And you say that art is a form of violence, and I really like that explanation, but I want to explore this dichotomy for a second because I think it's important. Someone like Plato or Socrates or even Aristotle, it seems to me that they would come along with the decay. It seems like they're almost part of this natural process by which people get a little bit more comfortable, have a little bit more calories in their belly, and they can start thinking a little bit more about who created the universe and how many bones do I have in my body. You see what I mean? Yeah, and I think great philosophy comes from it too. Like, there are no lions are not great philosophers, right? Because they're eating. Like, they are apex predators. They live in a state of religious delirium uh, constantly um, of just like doing what they were born to do. And I think if you look at a civilization in its sort of the strength of its adolescence, right? When it's just, it's just it is fertile and it is powerful and it is conquering. Like it has no, um, you know, they, they find the philosopher and they get, do the classic, like, okay, if you're so smart, why is my ax in your head? Um, like, uh, <laughs> like they're, they're, they're too busy. Um, just being powerful. They're, they're like lions who are eating to, to sit around and contemplate, uh, do the contemplation that's necessary for great philosophy. Okay, so that's interesting. So there's two, I've, I've got two points here. Number one, we got to point out that Socrates was a soldier. That's one thing. Here's another thing I'm going to point out. You could make the argument that Julius Caesar was not a political philosopher, but certainly someone who appreciated great philosophy. I know that after the incident with the pirates, he went to Rhodes to study rhetoric and philosophy. Yes. And he took the time to write that, you know, his book, and he was right. There's another one that I guess was halfway finished. Um, I forget what the name of that book that he didn't finish was, but it certainly seems like for someone as practical and um, murderous and villainous as he was, he did have a very philosophical side to him. Yeah, I, I think, um, I think this, uh, this dichotomy that we have between the artist and the conqueror is sort of a modern invention, whereas the warrior poet is a much older stereotype and I think much closer to home um, that you look at, you know, you talked about Caesar. I'm not sure how much of a philosopher he was, but he was a great writer. Um, he was essentially like the greatest novelist of, uh, of 50 BC. Right. Um, and um, apparently Alexander was, was, was quite a musician, uh, was apparently a very uh, talented and gifted. Um, I think it was the liar. I think he played the liar. Uh, yeah. Liar. Um, and, um, and anyways, this is, this is, you know, you can think of David, uh, if you're talking about the Bible, uh, the, the, uh, Hebrew King. So, so it's actually, there's one, uh, there's actually one, there's one in the Viking lore called Eagle, Eagle. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was the warrior poet from one of the Icelandic sagas. You should check him out. He was from about the 1200s. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I haven't heard of him, but I, I'd look into that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, um, and I think it's, I definitely think it's true to life. Yeah, so let's let's bring that home a little bit because there is a topic I want to put forth to you that I've been thinking about lately. And it, it is in around decline, but it's also about rise. You know, I can't help but notice um, in a lot of the histories of Rome that I've read that there becomes this um, love of all things Greek. They become Hellenophiles. 
and they take the heroes of the Greeks. You know, they, they conquer the Greeks in a number of ways and a number of times. But there is a love for all things Greek, really, and a lot of that Roman culture that comes around Caesar. You know, I guess there are notable holdouts, though. You get guys like Caius Marius who apparently don't even want to go in and see the Greek plays. And one of the things that I've wondered about this is if you could kind of see this, um, this pedestal pudding, almost, of the Greek culture in Roman civilization as actually being part and parcel with the decline. Um, yeah, so that's something that uh, the, the Romans themselves worried about and wondered about. Um, that does it mean that we have lost our sort of civilizational confidence? The fact that, you know, the language that was spoken in the Roman Senate um, after, um, well, by Julius Caesar's time was Greek. They were, they were speaking Greek in their highest and most somber um, um, uh, body, governing body. And, um, it, and so it's interesting, uh, but l- like this is another common trope. Is I think that's the thing that keeps some of this at bay, that you start to look at the Mongols and you're like, man, well, who's going to stand in these people's way? Like, are these guys just going to conquer to the Atlantic? Um, but, you know, with them and with every conquering civilization, inevitably there is this seduction, right? You talk about the, um, hard times create strong men, um, strong men create good times. Well, like also the strong men are a little bit seduced by the good times. Like they come and they, they conquer these, uh, these weak and these decadent civilizations, but they're also enticed by it. Right. Like, uh, yeah, maybe living in the mountains is what made me strong but i'm not sure i want to go back to it when like the wine is flowing here in the valley next to the river um so so there is that interplay yeah i mean uh let's i can flush this out maybe a little bit but it's it's gonna get really meta with what we're talking about here but one of the arguments that a lot of political scientists make about the instability in the roman empire is that they produced that the culture in the Roman, in all of the Roman world, for basically from the time of just before Julius Caesar to the fall everywhere, is that it produces this kind of iconoclastic, hyper-ambitious individual who's ultimately destabilizing to the civilization. And I wonder, I mean, you know, there's this maybe apocryphal story of Julius Caesar crying next to a statue of Alexander the Great or something. I wonder, when you produce, instead of 10 or 20 Julius Caesars in your civilization, you're producing hundreds or thousands of them a year, does that have an effect on your civilization that might start being actually decline? Interesting. So, in other words, you're generating all of these uh, ambitious young men who are uh, essentially pulling it in all these different directions, and you lose the sense of cooperation uh, that you had in previous. That, that times. and that and, but you you examine the valence of where their ambition comes from, and it's fame and glory for fame and glory's sake. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, I I think you know the other thing that I think plays into this is, um, you have to ask yourself. Okay, this, there's this thing called Rome. And you ask yourself, who is it for? Who is Rome for? Now, at the founding of Rome, it's actually very easy. 
to say who Rome is for. Because Rome is for a, a few hundred people, frankly. Um, it's for the citizenry of Rome. And uh, it was, Rome was not democratic in the way we think of dem- democracy, right? Um, so it was a few aristocratic families, essentially. And uh, so they, they would have called it a republic, but we would have thought it, uh, today we'd think of it as an oligarchy, um, which they would not have. The terminology has changed. Anyway, um, but as time goes on, it's really difficult to maintain this um, coherence around, okay, well, we're all sacrificing Rome for Rome because Rome is for us. Like the whole point of this political entity is it, it comes back to us. Now, and when Rome is, you know, millions of people and it's expanding and it's including more and more citizenry, um, then, okay, then, then there's this sort of implicit social contract is gone. And so then um, you don't have that tying incentive. And all of a sudden you get Julius Caesars who say, okay, well, Rome is for me, essentially, because um, not for anyone else. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, it's something that seems like it's a natural repercussion almost. Yeah, like once you start scaling, you just can't maintain that same level, that, that same social contract that's there when you start. Yeah, it, it, it decays almost along the same locus inter- of self-interest almost. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, which is why, and you know, as you, you already talked about uh, Marius a little bit, um, but Julius Caesar was not the first character like this, right? Um, you had Sola, and you had Marius, who was his uncle. Um, you had the Gracchi. You had, um, you know, Cincinnatus, who did go home to his farm, but sort of temporarily uh, was able to accumulate these sorts of powers. So, like, it had been going. It, it was like a natural process that was already moving in that direction by the time Julius Caesar got there. Yeah. Um, well, and so I think you could make a good argument too that Caesar learned maybe from watching Sulla exactly how that kind of thing could go. Yeah. And I wonder, I, I always have to just wonder how much that kind of influence plays into a young man's life, especially when um, it seems like when you read the ancient sources, a lot of them, especially the Greek ones, but that there's this, there is a lot of hatred or disdain towards the concept of a dictator. How someone might want to gravitate into becoming that is actually a genuinely interesting question. Well, yes, and um, and one I think we're going to find out a lot about in the coming decades. Um, because the question is always compared to what? And I think Julius Caesar was right to do what he did. I believe that. Um, because, and I think his assassins were short-sighted because you couldn't go back. That's just what, I was, what we were just talking about. Um, you, you, like the scale is no longer there where you can't have this little republic where everyone's going to sacrifice because, hey, there's... There's only a couple hundred of us and we all understand we're in this together. Like, no, if you're going to unite something of the size and scale that Rome was, it has to be in, you have to unite it on a single person. And, um, and so if it wasn't going to be Julius Caesar, it was going to be someone else or 
the alternative was was horrible like the prescription the prescriptions the civil wars like that is why people loved caesar that's why people were so relieved even though they hate they hated dictators they they had this like um civilizational antibody against dictators and yet they welcomed caesar with open arms because the instability the chaos that came with what was there before was uh was was so difficult to live with yeah, I mean that that seems like it's almost certainly true. It's it's almost like um the historical arsonist claim that you know just the the dead wood of an old forest kind of needs to be burned down uh so that a new thing kind of uh sprouts up anew. It's interesting though because it seems like someone like Julius Caesar invested quite a bit of his time and energy or maybe not even Caesar, but Cyrus for sure invested time and energy making sure... No, sorry, not Cyrus. Darius. Darius invests time and energy in making sure that no one comes to power the way he did. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, like the assassin who's always watching his back. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about, at the end here, some things that you think are symptomatic of rise and some things that you think are symptomatic of fall. Uh, so are you talking about on a personal level or on a civilizational level? I'm talking about on a civilizational level, and if you can tie it into uh, on a personal level, that'd be great too. Yeah, so I definitely think, so it's interesting. I think we are in decline. But who is we and what does decline mean? Uh, and what time period are we talking about? Are we talking about the United States of America? Are we talking about the American Empire? Are we talking about Western civilization? Like, it's it's kind of tough to pin down. Um, I think we can all, like, feel this feeling of decline, right? And it's hard to pin down exactly where it's coming from. Um, and, and what is, like, the real unit level of analysis that we should talk about? I actually think we are on a an enormous level of decline that if you look at you had the roman empire and what followed the roman empire well a number of german conquests and essentially every western european state was a was a germanic state um from you know spain and portugal you had the visigoths italy you had the lombards and the normans um the franks are a germanic tribe germany kind of goes without saying England, Scotland, Wales, uh, Ireland are all invaded by the Anglo-Saxons, who are um, who are Germanic. Um, Denmark. Yeah. Anyways, so all all of uh, Europe, and then all the empires that come, whether that be the Carolingian Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, all come out of these Germanic kingdoms down to the American Empire, which is what we're living through now. And I think that as the American empire declines, it's not just the American empire that's declining, but it is this, this meta structure of, of sort of Germanic domination that has existed for the last 1500 years. And, um, Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Okay. I got, I gotta just, I gotta explore this for a second. So you're telling me that there is some logic to this. Do you know the historian Tacitus? Yes. So he draws some attention to the inherent traits of those people that I guess were called the Germans from even that time, um, talking about 
being everywhere disciplinarians, uh, you know, not sleeping under roofs, um, and having a very rugged and ruthless diet. They can't stand the heat, but they love the cold and they're fine in it. You're telling me that there is something about this story that's true. I think so. <laughs> I do think so. Um, and I think, uh, I do think it's like sort of a hidden undercurrent that is there in the last, um, 1500 years. Now, obviously like you can look at those people and the Portuguese are very different from the Danes, right? Um, so I'm not trying to say that it's monolithic, but I am saying that I do think that there is this sort of, um, yeah, this, this sort of hidden thread connecting all the great empires of the last 1500 years. Well, how do you explain then how um, it, it is the case that some people seem to be really good at conquering empires, but not good at holding them and maintaining them? Um, well, um, whoa. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know what separates Yeah, I know. It's people. a genuinely tough question. I, but I, I think you can see it in individual leaders, right? I mean, Cicero sort of says about Caesar, it seems like, at one point, that he is a great—he's very skeptical of Caesar as a ruler. He thinks that Caesar is a great conqueror, but uh, that conquest and ruling are separate. And I think that that's actually, interestingly— made it into our modern form of government. We don't have our heads of state at the heads of armies. Yeah, and, um, you know, probably the most uh, uh, famous example of someone who could win an empire but not keep it was, uh, was Napoleon, right? Um, right. Who almost, like, um, there was this sort of uh, agitation uh, to keep conquering, to keep going. And, you know, if you look at the most stable of all of these empires throughout the last 1,500 years, the most stable has been the Holy Roman Empire, right? Which is interesting because it's not a real empire. Um, and so what made it so stable? Well, it was this idea that it was actually just this big structure under which people could could continue to climb and flex their power and try to to do more and accomplish more and bring more into their, uh, under their vassalage. So, uh, you know, um, I think that's, that's part of what makes something stable is allowing other people to still have ambition within what you're doing. Interesting. I mean, that is, I think that that is a really, really great way of thinking about how empires expand and contract, especially when you consider that, you know, our perspective a lot of the time or a historian's perspective about an empire a lot of the time is measuring whether or not it's expanding or contracting and, you know, what rate, uh, at what rate is it uh, retaining new territories. And it always seems, especially like in the Roman story, that when they're knocking on everyone else's door and they're really exerting themselves, there's problems at home. It's like there's almost this primordial rule that if you try to, to get more, you suffer more on the inside of your empire. Um, I'm just going to ask you one question in closing. And uh, I wanted you to kind of talk about who you think, if anyone, uh, or if you, you could name a couple people that you think, we already talked about one or two of these people, but if you could name some others, 
people that might be the subject of future How to Take Over the World podcasts, either real actual people, or you could even theorize what one person would have to do to draw your attention to this. Um, yeah, like it's, it's almost an overwhelming question because there's, there's so many people that uh, I want to talk about. Um, one of the episodes I'm working on right now is about Brigham Young, who uh, was a, f- a, for- a famous uh, leader of the Mormon people, Mormon church uh, here in the United States. Uh, and uh, I think he's interesting because he built so many cities. And I, I find that really fascinating um, all throughout the American West. Um, I also want to dip back into the well of, of ancient Rome. So you mentioned uh, Gaius Marius, and he is such a fascinating character who, like, for whatever reason, um, well, I know why, but, but doesn't get put on that level of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, but um, is, I think, that sort of man, right, has that sort of those magnetic, all those qualities that you would want in a world conqueror. Just such an interesting guy. That's another one that I would love, love to do. And then you talk about, um, you know, I talked about these 1500 years of Germanic rule. You kind of got to talk about the guy who really kind of, he didn't kick it off because you had all these Germanic conquerors going through, but Charlemagne is like the original. Um, And I would love to go and do an episode about Charlemagne sometime soon. Wow, that's great. Um, Yeah, I I would be very excited to hear you do any of those episodes. Um, Ben, do you want to say anything to anyone listening now about the podcast or anything like that before we sign off? Uh, go listen to How to Take Over the World wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, just before we close, though, there is one more thing I wanted to say, which is uh, uh, we talked a lot about my stuff and what I do, but uh, Zeke, I love your music. Your music is incredible. And, um, you know, that's one of the things I wanted to touch on is just like <laughs> you, you are sort of a man out of time, if that makes sense. Like, um, in an age that is headed towards entropy, uh, you have this music that is like so full of like youthful vigor and energy and life force that is incredible. That is really difficult to find. And I just, I love it. So uh, obviously if you're listening to the podcast, you're probably already listening to Zeke's music, but I'm a big fan. Thank you, man. I, I got to tell you, listening to podcasts about history with inspiring stories and inspiring people has inspired me to write a lot of the music I write. So it would be great if you kept doing what you do and I will continue to keep doing what I do. And uh, hopefully we will talk again soon, Ben. All right. Thanks very much, Zeke. Appreciate it.